scripture reading for today is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 1 to 21. Listen now to the word of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please uh, pray with me. God, thank you for this day. Um, We're just so grateful uh, to be able to meet and to worship together. Now, in the hearing of your word, speak to us. Give us a word that we need to hear today. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So last week we heard uh, three of the six parables about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. And I noted that Jesus never directly defines what the kingdom of heaven is, but instead that he compared it uh, somewhat ridiculously to a man planting a single mustard seed, to a woman kneading uh, leaven into a massive amount of dough, and to a man allowing wheat and weeds to grow together. In chapter 14 now, Matthew 
deliberately follows up those parables about the kingdom of heaven by juxtaposing these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Jesus. In the first kingdom, Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, hosts a private birthday party. In Mark's gospel, in the same parallel passage, we're told that the banquet was for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. As we would expect, only the most select, the most powerful, the most influential people get invited to this private affair. It would have been a debaucherously extravagant feast with sumptuous foods and drinks being served by slaves in excess. And during the festivities, shockingly, at least to us, Herod orders the execution of John the Baptist and for his head to be brought on a platter as if it were one final grotesque dish to be served to his drunken guests. The scene accentuates the fact that Herod's kingdom, like all other kingdoms of the earth, is a feast ultimately of death. In the second kingdom, it's just the opposite. It's not held at some luxurious palatial grounds, but in the wilderness. Those who attend are not the elites of the society, but seemingly whoever wants to come. All are invited. The meal may not be fancy, but for those who constantly were in a state of hunger, having enough to eat would have been a big deal. Everyone ate as much as they wanted. And you know that there would have been mothers there who would have brought along bags and Ziploc bags to take home some of the leftovers for the journey home and lunch the next day. The 12 basketfuls that were left over were the leftovers from the leftovers that had already been taken. In further contrast to Herod's actions, which is driven by the fear of the people, Jesus' actions are driven by a compassion for the people. And before the evening meal, he heals the sick. His kingdom is not a feast of death, but of life. And so with that contrast between these two kingdoms in mind, I want to make three reflections with you this morning about what Jesus is trying to tell us about the kingdom of heaven. First, it's significant that Matthew tells us specifically that it's 5,000 men rather than 5,000 people. 5,000 men rather than 5,000 people. The feeding of the 5,000 men made an incredibly, uh, it was a significant event in the life of the church, so much so that it is the only miracle that Jesus performed that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's the only one. And all the Gospels say that it was 5,000 men. Not 5,000 human beings, not a crowd of 5,000, but 5,000 men. And Matthew adds this unusual phrase to the end of his conclusion in verse 21. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, we might ordinarily attribute that to the typical patriarchal uh, dismissal 
of you know, women and children when they're counting and so on. Um, but in this case, I think there is an intentional choice of this word, men. In Exodus 12, for example, we see the same phrasing. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. That's the description of the Israelites as they were about to leave Egypt after 400 years of slavery. It was a pivotal moment in their history. And the way it's laid out, the wording suggests the strength of 600,000 men, a potential army, men that might be arrayed to defend the people against the Egyptians if necessary. Now, I'm convinced that Matthew is trying to make this point because he makes some incredibly awkward literary choices here. Notice that the story of Herod and John the Baptist is told as a flashback, and yet Matthew then tells us that the story of the feeding of the 5,000 men follows it and is a reaction to it. It's not very smooth as literature, but it makes an important theological point. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, that is, he heard about the execution of John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. It appears that Jesus is going out to a desolate place by himself after hearing about the news of John's murder. Then when the crowds hear it, they follow Jesus. Now, what the crowds hear is generally assumed to be the news that Jesus has gone into the wilderness, right? They hear that Jesus has gone to this place, and so they're going to go looking for him. They're going to follow him. But it's just as possible to read this is that the crowds, what they heard was not that Jesus was going into the wilderness, but that they also heard about the execution of John. In his day, John was better known than Jesus. He had a huge following. Josephus, the first century historian, for example, mentions John far more in his writings than he does Jesus. And he confirms that Herod felt threatened by John as a political threat and had him executed. So 5,000 men are gathering because of Herod's execution of John then this gathering is not for healing. It's not a bunch of people, you know, seeking Jesus out of curiosity. It's not even for collective grief. This is a gathering for potential revolution, rebellion, insurrection. In John's gospel, this is made clear because he concludes his telling of the feeding of the 5,000 men with these words. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. They were ready to force Jesus to be the king. They had looked to John to lead them and now turned to Jesus for political action to topple the world order, to defeat Herod, and to usher in the reign of God. The crowd is ready to march with one word from Jesus. 5,000 men 
is an enormous crowd in those days. The two largest cities in Galilee are estimated to have had populations of less than 10,000. With a crowd of 5,000 men, if Jesus were a political revolutionary or a religious zealot, he could have given an impassioned speech. He could have rallied the troops and stormed the palace. With 5,000 angry men, he would have succeeded, at least temporarily, until the Romans regrouped and came back and would crush the uprising. So Jesus has a unique opportunity here. It's the biggest crowd that's gathered around him. The people are ready to march. But what does Jesus do? Again, it's an interesting word choice, isn't it? Jesus orders the men to sit down. He orders them. That is a kingdom of heaven power move. For example... If you're with a group of people in person, not on Zoom, but if you're with a group of people in person and you want to communicate to everyone that the meeting is now over and it's time to go home, what do you do? Without saying a word, all you have to do is stand up. If you stand up, people know it's time to get up and it's time to go home. Meeting's done. It's over. Sitting down means you're going to slow down. You're going to stick around for a while. So by having everyone, by ordering everyone to sit down on the grass, I think here Jesus is diffusing a potentially dangerous situation. And notice the detail here about the grass in the wilderness to evoke Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. By ordering the men to sit down, Jesus takes on the role of the good shepherd and the Lord God. The psalm continues, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Even in the wilderness, there is green grass. There is an abundance and an overflowing of good things. Jesus is demonstrating that the kingdom of God is not like any kingdom on the earth. The kingdom of God will not be advanced by a show of force. Rather, without denying the reality of inequality and injustice, Jesus demonstrates that the kingdom of God is more like a good shepherd who heals, who feeds, and who cares for his flock, even in a wilderness. Second, Jesus commands his disciples, you give them something to eat. And in the Greek, the emphasis is on this word, you. You give them something to eat. You know, the disciples saw this large crowd, this massive crowd, and they took a very reasonable, pragmatic approach to the problem. And they tell Jesus, Jesus, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Maybe the simplest lesson that we can learn from here is that whenever you feel like you need to tell Jesus what to do, maybe you ought to just take a pause and stop yourself. Far better to listen to Jesus than to order him. 
Now, Jesus makes the abundance of the food possible, but he commands his disciples to feed the crowds. Isn't that interesting? I mean, he doesn't say, hey, guys, just just sit back and watch as I multiply the foods and and the food gets passed out miraculously. Rather, Jesus calls his disciples to bring what they have, no matter how meager it may seem in light of the needs. And Jesus blesses it, and then he gives it back to the disciples, and then they pass it, and it is enough. It is more than enough. Jesus will keep on giving back to his disciples, to us, what we need to do the work that he calls us to do. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gave his disciples instructions to preach the kingdom of God. And he gave them power to do that. Along with that message, he gave them the authority to heal the sick, to cleanse the lepers, to cast out demons, and even to raise the dead. And now he gives the order, you give them something to eat. A task that continues to remain with us. At the most fundamental level, Jesus calls us to feed the hungry. I know that we become more aware uh, in this season of, about food insecurity. And I'm so thankful that we've been able to uh, aid some people who have been in need, whether it's through uh, collecting cans of food, whether it's through uh, financial donations. And, and I know some families here have been visiting uh, someone who's uh, sick with cancer and, and just visiting and bringing a, a meal on Sundays. You know, in Jesus' day, uh, it was incredibly worse for the vast majority of people. Massive, you know, social inequality meant that a few people, um, like Herod and his friends, were able to eat as much as they want because of the burden they placed on the rest of the populace. Most people in the empire struggled to have a daily meal. And so the disciples' suggestion here that the crowds go and buy food for themselves in the villages is really quite callous, much more callous than it sounds. Like to us, hey, you know, why don't you guys go and get get something to eat? That's fine for us, for most of us. But in this situation, it's really cold. Most people could not afford to buy food, even if they could find it. Remember, these are 5,000. They took the day off from work. They needed a day's wages to buy food for their families. They did not have the luxury of having, you know, extra cash, disposable income on hand. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is not characterized by callousness, but by compassion, by deep, gut-wrenching care for the other. I mean, think about what Jesus must be feeling at this time. He just heard the news that John has been murdered. Aside from the grief of losing a friend, his cousin, he knows that he faces a similar fate. Understandably, right? He he wants to spend some time alone to pray, to grieve. But then this vast crowd follows him, this crowd who's sick, who's hurt, who's angry, who's hungry. And he spends the whole day caring for them. You know what we would have told Jesus? 
Jesus, take some time off to grieve. You deserve some alone time. You deserve it. Jesus, it's okay to say no. Jesus, you need to practice some self-care. Right? That's what we would tell him. I'm sure the disciples wanted to call it a day. Let's send them home. I mean, we've had a long day. It's the reasonable thing to do. The disciples certainly don't want to work into the night. Can you imagine being one of the 12 disciples? And you have to serve fish sandwiches to 5,000 men besides women and children. I don't know about you, but I'd rather be one of the 5,000 getting served than being one of the 12 having to serve the 5,000. The logistical nightmare, the cleanup afterwards. And it's evening too, right? So now you got to gather some wood for a fire, maybe find some blankets for the kids who are crying. I mean, it's just, right? Just tell everyone to go home. If Jesus can miraculously produce food, couldn't he just as easily miraculously make everyone's hunger go away? Or couldn't he just magically place those fish sandwiches inside the people's stomachs without having it being distributed by the disciples? He could, I suppose. But Jesus commands, you give them something to eat. You. That's you and me. Every single disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, what I've learned over the years, and I'm sure all of you have too, is that um, when I follow Jesus, he invites me to work. And sometimes he invites me to work overtime when I'd rather have some time off and be alone. When I have legitimate needs for rest, sometimes I have to forgo them because of the needs that's around me. Now, I want to be very clear and careful here. I am not suggesting that any of us adopt some sort of savior mentality that, oh, they need me and I have to save someone. I'm not saying that, you know, we're so special, so indispensable that you can't take a moment off or anything like that. I'm all for self-care in, in the limited sense, you know, of eating healthy and exercising, sleeping and, you know, having boundaries and all of that. But self-care, I mean, the word itself just sounds so unchristian, doesn't it? I just have a really hard time with it. Self-care. It has the danger of making our personal comforts our highest good. We must never succumb to the temptation to elevate self-care or anything else above our obedience to the call of Jesus Christ. There is certainly a time for taking care of yourself, but there is also a time for setting aside your needs to work with compassion for those who are in need. If our commitment is first to God and to his kingdom and to his will, it will mean that sometimes we will need to work and we will need to keep on giving when we are exhausted and would prefer to be alone. 
there's a lot of work to be done. And you know the needs that we have in the ministries of this church. And I know that all of you are busy. I know that you are tired. And I know you have legitimate excuses and reasons for why you are not serving or why you are not serving as much as you would like. But I would encourage you to listen again to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. You give them something to eat. And here's the promise that many of you have already experienced. Paradoxically, obedience to the physically exhausting work of compassion can be the source of the deepest spiritual rest. Compassions may lead you out of your weariness and be the best thing that you can do for yourself. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 12, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There is a yoke. There is a yoke. There is work to be done, but it will not crush us. Rather, it will lead to the deepest, most satisfying rest. That's the promise. And third, you know, I know today that we are more or less free to sit down to eat with whoever we want. But that has not been the case for most of human history. Not too long ago in this country, um, black and white Americans could not sit together in a restaurant, right? And while it's not a law or anything, you probably have people in your life today where it's very difficult for you to sit down and have a meal with them for a variety of reasons, you know, um, including diet, right? If some people follow a particular diet, whether they're, uh, I don't know, vegan or gluten-free or paleo or, or whatever else, like sometimes it's just hard to sit down and have a meal with them. Because it's not just a diet, right? It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a self-identity. It's, it's an entire way of living. Um, you know, one of the, um, in my family, um, I occasionally argue uh, with some members of my extended family um, because some members of my extended family follow uh, this system of eating called the five constitutions. And um, this system says that depending on, oh, the eight, con- oh, my bad, the eight constitutions. Um, and so depending on uh, which constitution you are, and uh, you, you are identified by, they, they take your pulse and they say you are one of these eight, um, you can only eat certain kinds of foods. That's that's the system. So if you're, a part, if you're this constitution, you can only eat these foods and you should avoid these other foods. And so um, whenever this topic comes up in the family, I just, I get very angry. I get really angry because it's, it's denying like delicious foods to other members of the family. And particularly for uh, like um, people who are older than me, I just feel like let them enjoy the food. And so that makes me angry. And also, it just makes no sense to me 
in any sort of scientific way whatsoever. And so I just, I just reject it on those grounds. And I also reject it because according to the system, I'm this type where I'm not supposed to eat seafood and I refuse to do that. <laughs> so I want you to imagine this scene, again, with a mixed group of people. I mean, think about your own level of discomfort these days, just being a crowd of people that you don't know very well. Imagine you read what you thought was maybe a political rally and suddenly you're told to sit down with the people around you to share a meal with these strangers. For those people who are wrapped up in a way of eating, where religious rituals of cleanliness, of dietary restrictions... To sit down with a group of unexpected people, a meal that you don't know where it came from, who made, like, right? That would have been unthinkable, unacceptable. I mean, it's one thing to go and listen to Jesus, but an entirely different thing to sit down with the other people that you don't know where they've come from. Because if they're unclean, ritually unclean, and you have any contact with them, then you're going to become unclean. So if you're going to sit down and and eat these fish sandwiches with the crowds, I'm sure a bunch of them, and and I know some of them did not eat because of that. But if you're going to eat, you have to trust Jesus. Right? It's, It's like if you have a peanut allergy... You know, you have confidence when you go over to your best friend's house. You know that they are not going to give you peanuts. Like, you know that they're going to be careful. They know you. They love you. And they're going to be very thoughtful in the way they prepare their foods. So whatever they serve, you're going to trust them and you're going to eat freely. But if you're invited to the home of someone that, you know, you're just an acquaintance with, maybe it's a company meal or something like that, you're going to ask questions. You're going to want to know, hey, how was this prepared? Is there, right? Because for you, it's a question of life and death, right? It's, it's a big deal to know how it was prepared. So imagine part of this crowd, the Pharisees in particular, right, are people who have that bent. They've been, you know, meticulous about the kinds of food that they eat and about who they eat with. And now you're being told, forget all that. Just eat together. It's crazy. Some people are going to be incredibly finicky about washing their hands and maintaining this this ceremonial cleanliness and maintaining their social distance. It's nothing new. And others aren't going to care at all. They're going to be very cavalier about this whole distancing thing. They're just going to eat because they're hungry. Jesus doesn't differentiate. He invites everyone to sit down together. He orders everyone to sit down together because maybe they didn't want to and to share the same meal. In serving these fish sandwiches to everybody, Jesus is doing something radical here. He is replacing their fundamental understanding of their, themselves based on these rituals of cleanliness and diet. He's replacing all of that with trust in him.
That's the invitation to sit down and eat. For the Jews, especially the Pharisees, what they ate, who they ate with, and how they prepared what they ate was central to who they are. You've heard the saying, you are what you eat. I mean, they would have wholeheartedly agreed with that, literally. You are literally what you eat. If you ate holy things, you are holy. If you somehow contaminated yourself in any way with something that was considered ceremoniously unclean, you are now unclean. Jesus mocked them for this, right? He said, you're so concerned about how you clean the outside of cups, but you have no concern about what really matters, all the junk inside, the dirtiness, the greed, the hypocrisy. And Jesus was criticized in turn for eating with the undesirables, with the tax collectors, with the sinners. And here he's inviting everyone to sit down together to eat and to trust him in the meal that he has prepared. You know, it may not, I don't know, it it sounds so simple and not particularly spiritual, but sitting down and sharing a meal with others may be the most important sign of the kingdom of heaven. I know I shared this story already at the leaders meeting uh, earlier this year, but let me share it again because I think it's such a good story and it makes this point well. Uh, Ten years ago, um, May of 2012, a 24-year-old Israeli man named Nadav ben Yehuda was trying to become the youngest Israeli to summit Mount Everest. And during his ascent, about 300 meters from the peak, he saw a man lying on the ground in the snow, no gloves, no oxygen, no shelter of any kind. And the climbers that were ahead of him just walked right past him. Now, he himself had already seen two other climbers who had fallen and had died en route to the summit. It may seem cruel, but at 26,000 feet above sea level, what's known as the death zone, you know, just seconds of not having, you know, you want to stay there as short as possible, and so it's understood it's acceptable to allow people who have fallen just to leave them to die because to help them uh, would put yourself at risk. And so you can imagine, he was about to walk by, and he said he would have walked by except for the fact that he recognized the man who had fallen. And so without wasting a second, he abandoned his dream. He abandoned his dream of reaching the peak. And at incredible risk to his own life, he tied his harness to the fallen man and began the descent to the nearest base camp. During his climb down, his oxygen system failed. And he had to remove the glove on his right hand and risk Um, frostbite and having to amputate his fingers. He suffered incredibly. It took him nine hours to reach the nearest camp. But in doing that, he saved a man's life. 
he would say later that he may have missed a summit, but that he had gained a brother. And when asked why he was willing to abandon his dream and to put his life in such great danger, he said, because we had shared a meal. That was his answer. Because we had shared a meal. What makes the story even more powerful is the fact that the man that he rescued was Turkish. He was Turkish. Turks and Israelis do not have a good relationship, and normally they would not sit down to a meal together. But they did. Because we shared a meal together. You know, sharing a meal together binds you to another person in a deep, deep way. And isn't that what we do when we share communion? When we share the blood and body of Jesus Christ, when we share this meal together, we bind ourselves once again to Jesus Christ and to one another. You know, if you think about it, if you think about it, this is just really kind of incredible, isn't it? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Of all the things he could have said, he said, do this. He could have said, preach a good sermon about me in remembrance of me. He could have said, build a statue of me in remembrance of me. That's what we do, right? Build a building as a memorial to remember me. Hold an annual memorial golf tournament to remember me. He didn't do any of that. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And so we shall. Let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night of his betrayal and arrest,